Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 18, verses 28 through 32. John chapter 18, verse 28 through 32. But before we read God's word, would you please join me in prayer, asking his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, enlighten us by your Holy Spirit to see the greatness, the glory, the grace, the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is presented before us here as a sacrifice for our sins, one who is accursed in our place. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 18, verse 28 through 32. You can pull it up on BibleGateway.com, any other uh, Bible website. You can uh, pull out your Bibles, physical Bibles, if you have them at home, and look at it there. We're using the NIV translation. Um, and if you remember, Christ has been brought before uh, Caiaphas, questioned. Peter has just done his third denial and this is where we pick up. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. The sermon this morning is called Christ the Sacrifice. And we could also say Christ the Accursed One. And uh, this really comes from what I think is uh, central to this passage, and that is verse 32, John's own commentary on these events. He says, this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to begin by saying, if you follow closely the logic of Christ's trial, the transition between the court of the Jewish leaders to the court of Pilate, a Roman prefect. You'll notice that the charge changes. Um, it's not as prominent in John's gospel, but if you look at the other synoptic accounts, you will realize, of course, that before the priests, before the Jewish leaders, the accusation is that he has committed the crime of blasphemy, claiming to be equal with God, and he is deserving of death. And if that were uh, Jewish law, then, then it would be true. That would be the case. Um, Jewish law states that blasphemy is a, a crime worthy of the death penalty. But as Christ transitions from the court of Caiaphas to the court of Pilate, the crime becomes that 
of claiming to be a rival king to Caesar. It's a political crime. He's one who is seeking to uh, usurp the authority of Caesar. He's a rebel rouser. He is a, a person trying to commit a coup. And Ketty, in his commentary, says about this transition, in the end, the great question is, Christ or Caesar? At the interface between Christian and government, the issue always comes down to whose authority is to prevail. Whose authority is to prevail in spiritual, ethical, and political matters on which the claims of the word of God have an impact? I think that's a very important question, um, deeply practical with what we're experiencing right now. You see, in the time of the first century church, there was a, fa- a phrase that was said, Kaiser Curios, Caesar Lord. And if you read the book of Acts, you read those who were imprisoned, you read those who were persecuted. It was not because they worshipped some other god. It was not because they had all these uh, weird and strange practices. It was because they would not say Kaiser Kyrios. They would say Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. And when they said that, they weren't saying that Christ is the only Lord. One only needs to read Romans 13 to find out that God is the one who ordains civil authorities. But what they were saying is Christ is the ultimate Lord. That the authority of Caesar does not surpass the authority of Christ. And when Caesar commands me to burn incense in his name and to praise him as a God, I say no. At the interface between Christian and government, the issue always comes down to whose authority is to prevail in spiritual, ethical, and political matters on which the claims of the word of God have an impact. Christ or Caesar. Here in this moment, Christ has presented himself as a sacrifice so that we can see him as the primary Lord. Our theme this morning is Christ is a cursed by God for us. He is treated as one who is a curse cut off for us in our place. We got three points this morning. The really unclean is point one. Two, the real criminals. Three, the right to execute. The really unclean is, is verse 28. And uh, this passage is chock full of ironies. And we're going to look at them this morning. Verse 28 says, the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to participate, to eat the Passover. Sorry, I'm laughing at it because you're supposed to laugh at the irony being presented here. There's three of them, actually. The first is that outward legalism was what the Jews were focused on, um, but disregard for true inner purity, which God's law requires. So here they are. They just had a kangaroo court 
that put Jesus on trial for being a criminal, found no crimes that he had committed, but drudged up some, uh, some eyewitnesses and some testimonies. And here they are. They're bringing him to Pilate because they want Pilate to do his dirty, their dirty work for him. They want Pilate to kill him. And what they're saying is, though, oh, we can't go into the area, the praetorium, the praetorium because then we'll be unclean. And we want to participate in the Passover. Here's these corrupt, unjust rulers who are condemning an innocent man to a criminal's death. And they're talking about cleanliness. They don't want to be unclean. Matthew chapter 23, Christ, he waits to the end of his ministry and he declares a judgment against people like this, the Jews. And he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is Christ declaring to these Jews, these Pharisees, these hypocrites, they're like a cup that's dirty on the inside. Can you imagine drinking from a cup that's disgusting and dirty on the inside. It's got mold. At my house, we find a lot of cups that have been left out by my, uh, by my youngest daughter. And they, you know, the sippy cups. And they had a little bit of milk in them. And then the milk's been in there and it's been spoiling for a while. And then you, you open it up and you can almost immediately smell it. You know, the spoiled milk. And, and, and what, would it, what would it be like if I took that cup and I cleaned the outside so it looked real nice and shiny, and I put some more milk in that, and I gave it back to my daughter. That's what he's saying they are. They're like cups that are shiny on the outside, but they're disgusting on the inside. They're like whitewashed tombs. Oh, man, you go, you go to a cemetery, you see a real nice whitewashed tomb. You know, the pillars are so nice and shiny. It's well taken care of. There are dead, decaying bodies inside of them. This is what the Pharisees, the Jews are doing here in this moment. Here, they bring Jesus to the palace early in the morning. Oh, they had an overnight, overnight trial. And here they are bringing them early in the morning. Hopefully nobody will see, right? Nobody will see the, the, the darkness of what they're doing, the deception of what they're doing. And here they come and they go, oh, I can't enter that Gentile area. I want to be clean. I don't want to be made unclean so that I can participate in the Passover. That's what John Calvin says. He says they do not consider that they carry more pollution within their hearts than they can contract by entering any place, however profane, and carry to excess their care about smaller matters and neglect what is of the highest importance. Jesus said it another way. He says, you tithe your mint and your cumin, but when it comes to widows, you steal their houses. 
And then you declare yourself righteous. We've got a lot of people right now in our world who are worried about outward cleanliness. Wash your hands. Use hand sanitizer. Don't touch your face. Wear a face mask. The question we need to be asking is, should these people be a whole lot more concerned about inward cleanliness? Should we? Are we looking at our hearts as much as we are looking at our hands? Give us clean hearts. Give us clean hands. Help us, Lord, to not be like the Jews who are concerned only with outward presentation and outward righteousness as they are in the middle of murdering someone. Help us not to justify our sin. Help us not to make excuses for it. We can't clean the inside of the cup. We need washed. We need baptized. We need regenerated. We need saved. That's one irony. Another irony is here when it says... They did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So in order to participate in Passover, they consigned the true Passover, their own promised Messiah, to ceremonial defilement and criminal's death. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this in his response correspondence with the church in Corinth. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? This is in the context uh, of realizing that there's a man who's sleeping with his, husband, his father's wife and that this is wrong. And, and the, the, the church of Corinth, they're boasting about it because they're saying, look, we're so full of grace, you know, we're not condemning this. Your boasting is not good, he says. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival of the Passover, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, in this new covenant, Christ is our Passover, and the unleavened bread that they had, right, that yeast that was in there, that we're supposed to get all the yeast out of the house, that represents sin. And we're supposed to get rid of the sin in our hearts and our lives, because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ, but here... Here in this story, these Jews want to observe the Sabbath, or the, the, observe the, the Passover, cannot see the true Passover. 
before their very eyes. Cannot see that they're condemning their own promised Messiah to ceremonial defilement and criminal's death. But there's one last irony in this passage about those who are really unclean. Although these Jewish leaders hand Christ over with all the self-righteous conviction of men who fully believe their own lie, and although this scene seems quite dark, it's actually the dawning of a new gospel age. You see, in the mystery of providence, these Jewish leaders have become Joseph's brothers, selling their brother into slavery. And what they mean for evil... God means for good to save many lives today. The purposes of grace are unwittingly served, even by the wicked doing what is in their wicked hearts to do. There's not much greater comfort than that. What I'm saying is, although it is wicked that these men are ignoring the true Passover lamb so they can express their outward righteousness by observing the Passover that is to be fading away. It is actually in handing Jesus over to Pilate that they are making the sacrifice of the Passover lamb happen. The very own possibility of their own salvation. And this is exactly how the early church reflected on these events. Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 28 after Peter and John were, uh, were beaten for preaching in the name of Christ, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Quoting from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, they said... Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So this is the early church. They say, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel. That is four categories of people who conspire together against the holy servant Jesus to do the evil that was in their hearts to murder Jesus. And this is what the early church said. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Does that get them off the hook? No. If Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel and the city did not repent for the evil that they willed to do, that was in their hearts to do, they're going to hell. But at the same time, the purposes of grace are unwittingly served even by the wicked doing what is in their wicked hearts to do. The salvation of mankind came about through the actions of wicked people doing something that was wicked. Condemnation and murder of an innocent man. That's point one. The really unclean. What about the real criminals? 
Verse 29 to 30. Pilate came out to them, so they didn't want to come in, so Pilate comes out to these Jews. Um, he, he's working in this city, uh, Jerusalem. There's a lot of Jews. He has to keep them happy. Um, the Roman thumb is on them, but he doesn't want them to get too upset, so he's got to, he's got to uh, pander to them like a politician does, obviously. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? And verse 30, they say, If he were not a criminal... We would not have handed him over to you. I mean, can't you hear the snark in that verse, that, that conversation, the way they're saying that? If he were, that, that sounds like my five-year-old girl talking to me. If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate goes out to meet them and hear their case. And Carson writes, historians have come to know him. That is Pilate. We need to get a, a grasp, a, a sense of who he is as a character in this narrative. Uh, as a morally weak and vacillating man who, like many of the same breed, try to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness and brutality. So what we find in this exchange, and we'll continue to find, is that Pilate is unwilling. Unwilling to condemn Jesus, not because of a sense of morality or, or uh, justice or upright ethics, but of a desire to keep his political life untangled. Nonetheless, this exchange does reveal that Pilate, he has a disinclination to regard Jesus as a criminal. He says, what charges are you bringing against this man? What charges are you bringing against this man? Here's another irony. That can be seen in this exchange between the Jews and Pilate. If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Think about it. Here's the real criminals who have unrighteously and with utter corruption just sentenced Jesus to death without an ounce of real evidence and are here presenting Christ, the innocent one, as a criminal. I mean, the weakness of their argument is clearly seen. Uh, it's actually an example of a fallacy, illogical. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's an improper appeal to authority. It's an improper appeal to authority. There's a Latin name for it, but I figured I would spare that, spare you that. Here, here's how their argument is going. Because we are who we are, quote, authoritative judges of these matters, he must be who we say he is, quote, in this case, a criminal. If you want another example of um, an illegitimate appeal to authority, it would be something like that, like this. Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist and perhaps the foremost expert in the field, says that evolution is true, therefore, it's true. This is the kind of bluff, um, expression of illeg illegitimate, illogical thinking that we hear all the time today from academics, politicians, and even pastors and theologians. Oh, you think you're supposed to listen to me? Because I've got an MDiv? Oh, I do. I have an MDiv. I haven't mastered divinity. I can be wrong. I'm a fallible man. Fact check. 
Fact check, fact check, fact check. Are we supposed to listen to uh, President Trump because he's the president of the United States? Maybe. Not always. Not always. In fact, if you want a, a real uh, sharp, contextualized example of an illegitimate appeal to authority in our current circumstances, it's happened in the midst of this pandemic in relation to, quote-unquote, the experts. The epidemiologist, the virologist. I'm not saying that we should not listen to to Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks or, or whoever these people may be. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to them. I'm saying we shouldn't just accept what they're saying because they are quote-unquote experts. That's an illegitimate appeal to authority. And it's exactly what these Jews are doing here. If he were not a criminal, we would not have presented him to you. You simply just have to believe what we're saying, Pilate. You can't examine the facts. We are the experts. We said it, so it must be so. No examination of the facts. No questioning of the outcome. And I want to be really clear here. Because I think we need to be careful in these conversations. But, um, and, and, and it's easy when we're looking back on, on situations. But... Trusting experts has not panned out well for us in this situation. And what are you supposed to do when you have contradicting experts? One expert says this, another expert says this. What do you do then? Here's what I would say. I would say... We trust the true expert, Jesus Christ. We trust God's word. It's infallible. It's without error. We trust the one who can be trusted. And we examine all other claims, all other situations in light of that, in light of God's word. Pilate doesn't do that here. The irony here is the real criminals are calling Jesus a criminal to disguise the fact that they're the real criminals. What about this last point, the right to execute? We've looked at the really unclean, the real criminals, the right to execute. The last two verses here. Pilate said... Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So his response to their appeal to authority, illegitimate appeal to authority is, well, if he's a criminal by your standards, if he's a criminal by your law, take him yourselves and judge him by that law. But they come back and say, we have no right to execute anyone. The Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. 
Under Roman rule, lacking true independence, the Jews did not have the power of sword in their hands. Now, it's interesting if you examine the scriptures, you can find that oftentimes the Jews would take the law into their own hands. They didn't go to the, the Roman authorities to ask for a criminal of theirs to be executed. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find that immediately they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, right? Um, and if that would have been the case, if, 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 if they would have taken it into their own hands, Christ would have been stoned to death. Um, but in this situation, they, they don't do that. They want, uh, they want Pilate to do their dirty work. And that's why it says in verse 32, that commentary, this happens with the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. That means that there's a kind of death that Jesus has to experience that is a Roman invention that is particular to the kind of death which he prophesied would occur, that is a kind of death that is unique, and it's the way it's expressed in the Old Testament in distinction to that typically of being stoned to death. So under Roman rule, lacking true independence, the Jews did not have the power of the sword in their hands. Romans 13, Paul talks about this. He says, let everyone be subject to governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, wherever rebels against Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against who God has, what God has instituted. And those who do so, do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Just to be clear, Romans 13 gets thrown around a lot these days. Romans 13 is not a blanket statement for always listening to government all the time, okay? Um, it states here clearly um, that the government is God's servant for good to punish evildoers. But if the government is punishing those who are doing good um, or asking us to do anything that God forbids um, and civil disobedience is not only allowed, it is commanded. Christ or Caesar. But this question, Pilate tries to evade, doesn't he? The first of four efforts on his part to do so, the Jews want him to do their dirty work and they want to show the world that Jesus committed sin, deserving of death, and was dealt with according to the law of God and was accursed. They wanted to make an example out of Jesus. This all happened according to plan. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have their own reasons for dying in this way, hanging on a cross, for Christ hanging on a cross. This brings us another irony, doesn't it? A final irony. The Jewish leaders say, but we have no right to execute anyone. We have no right. This brings up the question, who really has the right to put anyone to death? Um, of course, reading Romans 13, you read that the civil authorities do have the right to put to death those who do evil. Um, that, I guess that deals with the question of 
whether the death penalty is appropriate or not. And it is the case, biblically speaking, that the death penalty is appropriate in certain circumstances, under certain situations. But the ultimate authority to give and take life, who does that belong to? It belongs to God and God alone. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job reminds us, right? The psalmist in Psalm 139, he says of God, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All our days are written. All of them. I mean, this isn't a license to go out and be a fool. But that doesn't make this statement any less true. Face mask or no face mask. There's not a day of your life that can be taken away that was not meant to be lived according to God. Wash hands three, four times a day, hand sanitizer. There's not a day in your life that you can live longer than God has ordained for you to live. It's true. It's the biblical truth. And that truth that the psalmist proclaimed. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Is also true of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Later in John's gospel, when Pilate sought to question Jesus and was perplexed by his silence, he said to Jesus, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And listen to Jesus' answer. It is profound. It is profound as to the question of Christ or Caesar, right? Jesus answers back to him, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus knew that what he was experiencing, what he was going through, was his Father's will. So although Pilate may have the power, the one who really has the power to give and to take away, to free or to crucify, is God. And it was God's will that the Son be crushed on the cross. That Christ be accursed for us. Jesus must be seen as accursed by God. He must be accursed by God in our place. And that is why John said, this happened so that the words that Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Galatians chapter 3, Paul speaks of this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, 
so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Even though the Jews express an irony when they say, we have no right to execute anyone, even though Pilate himself will come to realize that ultimately he has no right to execute anyone, that it's God and his power working above to bring about these things through the wicked hearts of men to bring salvation to mankind. Scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus' own words will come to pass, and atonement will be made for the sin of sinners, for your sin, for my sin. And this, this expresses the superiority of Christ over Caesar. That's the great question, isn't it? We're going to keep looking at this exchange and it's going to grow even more profound, even more obvious. Christ or Caesar? Kaiser Kyrios, Christos Kyrios. You choose who's the ultimate, who is Lord. At the interface between Christian and government, the issue always comes down to whose authority is to prevail in spiritual, ethical, and political matters on which the claims of the word of God have an impact. Christ here is our sacrifice. He's our accursed one so that we could be empowered in the face of of injustice in the face of a power struggle between the so-called gods of this world and Christ the God-man and that we could proclaim with our own mouths that Christ is Lord. Is that not what we are saying when we say my only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own. I belong. Body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has purchased me. He has redeemed me. He has saved me from the tyranny of the devil. That's what we're saying. We're saying Christ is Lord. Lord's day one. Question and answer one is saying Christ is Lord. I belong to him. I can't belong to another. I belong to him because he was accursed by God for me and has redeemed me from my own outward self-righteousness and set me free to live for him. Amen. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. May we see, Lord, that in this passage, we are the truly unclean. We are the real criminals. We are the ones that often seek to take things into our own hands. We want to guide our own destinies and futures when you are the one who is sovereign. And in all this, passage, we see Christ obeying your will, following your path to the cross, to be a curse in our place, to free us from our uncleanliness, to free us 
and the judgment we deserve for being criminals and to free us to let go of our own lives and give them to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.